Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in the book of Leviticus. Uh, if you have the green book, the women's Torah commentary in front of you, the commentary for this uh, parsha is uh, by uh, Dr. S. Tamar Kamienkowski. Uh, and she teaches at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College, and um, this is her book uh, on Leviticus um, from the Wisdom Commentary, uh, which is focusing uh, also on, uh, this is a feminist biblical interpretation. Uh, Dr. Kamenkowski did the Leviticus volume. It's her favorite book of the Bible. She's kind of a, she's an expert in this book of the Bible, uh, and so if you're in the green book, it's her commentary, so I'm going to be using her commentary uh, from this book, uh, which will be it's longer, a bit longer than the um, green book, but you'll have in front of you kind of what I have in front of me. Mm-hmm. I learned with Dr. Kamienkowski this past week um, in her Beit Midrash. You all can go to her Beit Midrash as well. She teaches Hebrew there and some other stuff, so and Bible, uh, some Bible stuff. So uh, I was learning with her about the book of Leviticus because that's the season we're in, so she decided to offer a couple classes on Leviticus. And I just want to add something that I learned from her this past week that I did not know because um, that's my job is to share with y'all things I did not know. Um, y'all, I realize, know, like, most of what she taught. So if, you've, if we've been learning together all these years, y'all know most of what she taught. So I was very pleased that you all knew most of what I was learning. But I, but I did learn something that I want to share with you, which is about we've talked. So tell me, tell me our sources. When we talk about the critical source material, we're talking about whom? J, E, P, and D. So y'all know this. For those of you who don't, that's fine. That's why we do a little bit of review. So J, E, P, and D are our sources when we talk about um, looking at the Bible from uh, the source material that all gets put together. So the Yahwist, the Elohist, the priestly source, and Deuteronomy, right? I've told you many times before that there is an argument about dating P, right? There's an argument about early P or late P. And and there is a raging debate still about it right now. And it's heated up a little bit, some of this um, dating stuff. Um, so, so we are studying right now what is considered another source, which is the H source. Because we are in now the holiness code, Right. So the, there's an argument about early P or late P, which you know, because I've told you that. Um, and H is a source that we need to decide, is it before P and P incorporates it? Or is it after, you know, that P is responding to something with the holiness code? So what have I taught you about H? <laughs> now I've got them stumped. All right. What I've taught you about H is that the priestly source that is dealing with pure, impure, 
offerings and the technicalities around that, what the Israelites are supposed to do vis-a-vis eating it, all the rules and instructions and all of that, that, that the P source doesn't care about behavior. So P is not interested in behavior. We know H is. We're going to look at the text. The holiness code is all about people behaving in ways that are in line with holiness. So what I learned from Dr. K. Minkowski, early P, late P. I've argued for an early P for my own reasons. I never shared with you why. What I learned from Dr. K. Minkowski is some of the earliest biblical criticism that wants to make P late is anti-Semitic in nature. I did not know that. Why? How? If if P is only concerned with legislation, only concerned with the law, not concerned with morality, ethics, behavior, if P is only concerned with this is how you do this, this is how you do that, this is how you bring the offering, this is when you bring it, then you don't do that, then you do this. If that's what P is concerned about and P is late, then anti-Semitic thinkers can point to Judaism, meaning kind of the later expression of Israelite religion as it's becoming Judaism, is only concerned with the minutia of the law, right? And this is a comparison against Christianity, which is concerned with love and God as love and forgiveness and human behavior. So it's an argument kind of coming against Judaism for P to be late. I'm not saying that's the only argument to make P late. Some people really believe P is late because of other evidence. But I did not understand that so many of the early documentary hypothesis scholars really had an agenda to make P late in order to criticize Judaism that was coming out of biblical cult religion. Back to politics, right? Or theology, <laughs> which sometimes, right? I'm not sure they're so different, um, right? So, um, so that's one thing. So then the other thing is those people with that agenda are going to argue that H is what? H is early and is incorporated into, like P incorporates H, which was a long ago earlier text as Judaism evolves into this legalistic, minutia-obsessed religion, H gets dragged along from an earlier time. Um, that's, of course, backwards from how I think about this and other scholars think about this, that P is, in fact, an early source reflecting accurately early practices in the cult. And that, well, it continues, right? It's not just, just, just early. It, the, the P writer and the school of thinking continues, but that H is a response by P to people like the early prophets, right? Who are saying, right? We read it on Yom Kippur. What do I want with your sacrifices, Israel, when you're oppressing each other? When you take the, you know, the poor person's garment as pledge and they're freezing at night. When, uh, what do I want? I want you to unfetter the chains of the, right? You don't, you know it. You've read it. Hopefully you're sitting there reading, right? Carefully as we go through services. Um, you know, that's what I want to lift the yoke off the bread, to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked. That's what I want. I don't care about your sacrifices that you bring to me on Yom Kippur. Fat on your sacrifices if you're not behaving as moral and ethical people. 
So, so, the, so the H is seen as a response to that criticism by the priestly school that starts to have a more dynamic understanding of the divine. Early, the early P material that we've been studying till now in the book of Leviticus, that material has a very static God. Remember, we talked about God is infinite. God is only holy. God is all that. God is only pure. How do you have that God interact with human beings who are pure and impure and pure and impure and pure and impure just by virtue of the fact that they're human? How do you, how do you have a relationship between those? The cult is to mitigate that relationship. That is the point of the cult. So it mitigates that relationship. Now you start to have a slightly more dynamic theology in H. That God is impacted in some way and involved in some way with human behavior. Cares, if you will, about human behavior. That is a more dynamic God. That is a different God than we have in the earlier priesthood. So we see a bit of a shift here with our chapter that we're going to look at right now, the material we're going to look at right now. This is the H source. And so you can decide, is that an earlier source? Is that a later source that the priests are coming to a new expression of theology and a new understanding, if you will, of God and humanity and their relationship? H stands for the holiness code, the the source, the school that, that has the philosophy that results in the texts of the holiness code. If we forget it, absolutely, you can call it the human, the human side, that God cares about human behavior all of a sudden. Not all of a sudden. It, all these things evolve slowly, right? But, um, but we haven't seen it before in the P material, in Leviticus, right? It's not that God is uninvolved. Think of God walking around in the garden saying, where are you? That is not P. Peace God cannot walk around in a garden, would not care to because there's not a God to care. God is a force, right, that is repelled or attracted, right? Okay, so even Noah's God, says Richard Rajay, is focused on people's behavior. So we have very early J.E. material where God cares very much what human beings are doing, not P, Okay. So P's theology in some ways is much closer to mine, much closer to mine than J-E or D. Why? Because for me, God is kind of more abstract, right? As a force, as an energy, as something I draw on and draw through me. I don't have a God who hears my prayers and decides yes or no. I don't have the God of J-E, right? So oddly enough... (laughs) The priestly material, the priestly theology in some ways is a much more contemporary understanding of God and godliness than J.E. or D, right? D is the God who withdraws because the people have sinned, right? And they're in exile now because they earned it. That, that's not my God. Peace God is pretty close, Right? How do I behave in a way is to activate that force that we call purity, holiness, goodness. How do I activate that in the world and how do I clean up the ickiness of when I don't behave the right way? That's very close to P. P is godding. I mean, I, I, I'd have to think about that, but, but, but possibly. 
Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, that's, he is obsessed with life force, right? The life force is the only thing that can cleanse sin, right? It's very, very concerned with energy and forces. If we use that language, that makes a lot more sense to me than the God of J.E. Look, I love the stories of J.E. You know that. I teach them with great excitement and passion, much more than Leviticus in some ways. But Leviticus actually lines up better, right, with, in some ways, with, with my theology. All right, so let's take a look at some of this material. This is material you know. You know a lot of this. What does Judaism stands for? Here. This is what Judaism is at its core. We turn to the holiness code because we like the part of Judaism that says you should, you should, you should, you should, and we like to show it off, right? And I'm not, I'm not arguing we shouldn't. This is some beautiful material. You know it. All right, so let's look at it. You're going to look at your, your women's Torah commentary if you have it in front of you um, for Kamienkowski's uh, comments and anybody who wants to share a comment that you find interesting, terrific. I will be sharing a few. We're starting at chapter 19, verse 15. You shall not render an unfair decision. Do not favor the poor or show deference to the rich. Judge your kin fairly, right? So this is about the judiciary. This is about, so, so, do not favor the poor or show deference to the rich. So neither way is okay. You can't make a decision because you feel badly for one party because they're poor or because you're afraid of the repercussions, right, of punishing someone or finding guilty someone who's wealthy. Neither one is okay. Do not deal basely with members of your people. Do not profit by the blood of your fellow Israelite, I am Yudhei Vafei. Okay, so what is this uh, actually? Lo teilech rachil be'amecha can have to do with, uh, there's lots of ways to, to look at this word rachil. Lo ta'amod al dam re'echa, this is, as we know, um, it says you shall not profit by the blood of your neighbor. Literally translated, it is what? Do not stand on the blood of your neighbor. So how do we generally translate this? You've seen it all over bumper stickers. Do not stand idly by the blood of your neighbor. So it gets shortened on bumper stickers too. Do not not stand idly by. This is the origin of that verse. Literally, do not stand on the blood of your neighbor. So meaning you can't just let hap- something happen that's going to endanger the life of someone, you know, and you know about it and you don't do anything to intervene. It has been used widely in Jewish tradition, particularly now to say that means if there's genocide happening somewhere in the world, do not stand idly by, right? We can't, we can't just do nothing, right? That the Torah tells us. So it's been used hugely expansively. Rechil may have something to do with speech, um, and about, uh, harmful speech. So, um, you know, bad, walk, going after speech, right? Is like means tales about other people is generally not a way to make good decisions, right? About how you're dealing with uh, people in your community. All right. Now, interesting that one of the things the holiness code deals with is how we should feel, which is interesting. This is the only, according to Kamienkowski, 
The, this is the only ancient Near Eastern law code that talks about how we should feel or think. Um, that, that's a really hard thing to legislate, right? And we've had this conversation around ve'ahavta et Adonai lohecha, right? The ve'ahavta after the Shema. How can you legislate love? Um, so this is more legislation around how we should feel and how we should think. So what is that? You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall uh, reprove, is the English, uh, your amitecha. I don't love kin, like a, a member of your people. But, this is the disjunctive vav, not the conjunctive vav. But don't. Bring on yourself by doing so, chet, sin. So what does that mean? Reprove your neighbor, but don't, in doing so, bring upon yourself sin. Any ideas? People at home, you're going to have to unmute because on my screen is just the text. I've always interpreted it to mean that you have responsibility to Tell your neighbor when your neighbor is doing something wrong, but not to the extent that you sin, that you need to be careful at how you criticize people. And so what would sin look like? The Lashon Hara. So which is, Lashon Hara is slander, is gossip. So how does reproving your neighbor fall into gossip? What's what's the connection? Well, you could be telling them about gossip. You what? Well, it's also how you do it. I'm I sorry? Say it it's again? It's how you how you do it. All right, you well, know. what's the sin? Y'all are all telling me about how you do it. What's the sin? That's, that's what the sin is. The sin is if you, if you behave in a manner that is hurtful or derogatory toward them, then you're kind of stepping into their, their muck pile and, and you're not, you're not making a change. Okay, much better. My, so, so now you're someone else's business. So now, no, no, this is not about staying out of someone else's business. This is the opposite. You are required to step into other people's business. You are implicated. All right. So, but what I, that's what I wanted to hear. How can I sin by doing that? By, I heard damage, hurt somebody else. So correcting someone about something I don't know actually to be true that they, that they did or didn't do. Okay. Or rep- rep- reprimanding. Reprimanding. This is about reprimanding. See how confusing this gets? You're supposed to reprimand your neighbor. But, but don't you're offend not them? supposed to sin by reprimanding your neighbor. Barry, but- you've had your hand up so politely. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I see a dual meaning here. Um, Semitic languages in the past used the al, the on. Um, um, a word for uh, something to have against another person. So if you if you take it that way, then you do not carry his sin against him. You, you so see someone to... sin, and, so and you carry the sin. And Mary, the, the sin the is sin? of the other. The sin is of the other person. The other person is sinning. I see that person sin. And I, uh, I hate him in my heart for sinning, but, and I don't go and tell him, look, bro, 
this is not the way to do things. You're missing your point. You're missing your mark. So, uh, and, and so, and then, and the other, uh, meaning, the dual meaning is that you may have the, the fact that you did not reprimand that person, the fact that you did not stop it, uh, w- will become a sin upon you. So there's okay. a dual meaning to carry the sin of another against All them. All right. But, but I think the, 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 <laughs> the evident meaning of the text though, Barry, I think is, that disjunctive verb is important. But don't, don't bring on yourself sin, right? So I, I hear what you're saying, that if you don't do that's a sin. It, it does not feel to me, though. It doesn't need to clarify at the end. And if you don't, it's a sin. I feel like, I feel like Torah is, is giving us more detail that you are, you must reprimand your neighbor, but, but don't do it in a way that then brings on you chet, sin. Could it okay? be do not diminish them? So do not diminish them. I think absolutely. No, or, 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 or justify a sin of your own because it's in correction of their sin. Which and is, what's that sin? Well, you could, you know, I mean, just to make it more contemporary, you can, you can, Say your own falsehood in re, in response to their falsehood to try and correct them, and then it's just I mean it's sort of like Twitter, right? Um, you know where everybody's uh, justifying some sort of end result, but it's it's okay to lie because it's in a good cause. Or I'm trying to. So let's say you're reprimanding thing. your neighbor for lying or giving disinformation, right? And you, you your own your own disinformation, your, your own exaggeration or disinformation to, of to your own. Them. Okay. Uh, you're, it just becomes a kind of arms race. So you have to right. you have to correct them ethically to try and stamp out the. Otherwise, it just right. So I think Torah's concerned and the rabbis definitely read it this way that yes we must reprimand and address what we see as wrongdoing in our communities we have to be willing to confront one another we can't do it in a way that now makes the situation worse right that 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 is supposed to be about how we can help improve the behavior in our society if we behave in a way that's ugly, nasty, diminishing, embarrassing, angry, blaming, shaming, all of those things, we have done the opposite of what this is intended to do, which is to, to, to have less of that in our society. And this, this is why I don't argue with some people. <laughs> this is why I will not get into one of those conversations, because I wind up as nasty as they come. <laughs> you, you know, like, it just makes me crazy to argue about some things. I can't talk about abortion with anybody <laughs> right now unless they agree with me. I, I won't. I can't because I get too crazy, right? And I know that about myself. So Torah's saying, Amy Bernstein is not the one to go hocheach to somebody about abortion. I can't be trusted to, to do it. What, Bert? Uh, the the uh, Eitz Chaim commentary... Mm-hmm. Uh, talks about public shaming, mm-hmm. that 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 could be the sin. Sure. That right. if you if you are you're criticizing somebody, but you're not doing it face to face. You're doing it in public, which is a sin. Well, doing it face to face in public is the same sin for the rabbis. By the way, halba not panim, embarrassing right. someone publicly. That well, that's what I meant. Whether it's face to face or yeah. on Twitter, right. it doesn't matter for the rabbis. It has to be 
private, private. That's has to be respectful. Um, and all of those things that we just mentioned, right? That you don't want to increase behavior that is embarrassing, shameful, humiliating, all those things. You don't, that is not helpful. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it also be sinful if you were shaming them not in public? I mean, if you sort yeah, of basically called 100%. them a lot. So it's not just uh, in public, it's also private behavior. Absolutely. Yes. Both. Gam vagam. Yes and yes. Rahil, we, we think it's about speech. Yes, about uh, harmful speech. Um, it's it's in Numbers 12 uh, about Miriam. So, Amy, it's also about not throwing in the kitchen sink, about sticking to the topic that you're correcting, because I tend to say, and then you did this, and then you did that. Right. So sticking so to the one. piling on. Right. Right, which goes to, to all that kind of behavior that we don't want to see as a result of trying to mitigate bad behavior, right? In, in dealing with bad behavior, don't do bad behavior, <laughs> right? And, you know, Ramba, the, the rabbis write about this like tomes they write on this. A lot of ink, rabbinic ink has been spilled on this. And so like Rambam says, you have to be calm enough to approach someone to do this act and, and you have to be calm enough and open enough to be ready to forgive the person. So you don't just reprove them and then run away, says Rambam. You need to wait till you are cool-headed enough and open enough to once you reprove them and they say, I am so sorry, I didn't realize I was giving disinformation. I thought vaccines really do kill you. Then you have to be open to accepting their apology. Mark? You know, I'm... I think uh, what you bring to mind is Hitlam Dude. So even before you get to what you said, you need to be aware of what's arising within you. So before you explode, you're prepared for what's happened. Right. We know that. Torah doesn't care. But but yes, as we spirit, As a spiritual practice. We know that. Yes. Torah doesn't care. Torah just do what you got to do. <laughs> to be able to right in a way that you don't yeah. take their face off, whatever that means for you. So you know, I just wondered if there was, um, as usual, this. Um, I, I've been listening to the uh, podcast, so I haven't been able to talk. So maybe I'm repressed. Good, after having done bring it. For it a year. Bring it. No, no, no. But I'm just thinking of the <laughs> emphasis, uh, you know, in the United States, uh, you know, First Amendment, like the f- freedom of speech. But there's not a lot of talk about the harm of speech. And here you've got. The emphasis is is um, the harm of speech rather than the the freedom of speech. Yes. Um, and it's it's an interesting reversal. But I I, I was just going to ask if if there is any mention of the of the inverse of this. You know, like because if the 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 extreme of being too cautious is to not to be afraid to say anything. So so how does Judaism and your with your understanding come down? How, like where does it land? That that. As always, it's a both and. And the trick of a both and, the difficulty of a both and, is am I calm enough to go have this conversation? Right? I mean, that's the hard part. We have to speak, but we can't we can't speak in such a way that we're going to cause more damage. So am I ready? Is it about this issue? Is it about that issue? In what way might I communicate? Like, maybe I just need to send them an email because I'm not able to have that. I don't trust myself to have that conversation face to face. Maybe if I can only do it face to face, 
right? Until I can think about, but that's the work. The rest of the work is figuring out where is the, where can we fulfill the injunction without violating the other injunction? Mm-hmm. That That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's exactly right. And that's really hard. Right. It's really hard. Be silent and turn the other cheek or whatever. You know, if you just have an absolute about something, it's not easy to do, but it's at least clear what you're supposed to do. Judaism is much more murky. And, so then is there that implication or that asking of us then to be better people ourselves or to work, do, do our own work first so that if if the goal is to um, to address and not stand silent that demands of us then also to become better at who we really are so that we are in a better place to address more more of the concerns or more of the issues is that absolutely because that's the only way we can fulfill this commandment like i said to mark torah doesn't care do what you have to do to get there people now we can talk for days which we do right about so well what is that going to take right rabbi el shai that i was going to share with you her commentary you know is about okay so there some of these are actually connected to the work that we have to do before we're able to go do the work of hocheach tochiach uh, right. Um, and just just to tell you also, Mark, Rechil um, also has to do with trade. So possibly Rechil means people who are not part of your permanent community. Right. And so so there's it, it depends on which which meaning of the word you want to go with as to what we want to interpret that to mean. The, okay. the text, the text keeps on saying kinfolk. Does this just refer to fellow Jews? So that's a good that's a good <laughs> conversation to have. Yes. Yes, because we have other rules that say what? You will love the ger, right? So this this is about the people who are you considered your people, this right? Then we have laws about how you treat the ger, right? But you still, sh- I mean, I, did, I would assume Jewish tradition says you also have to be nice to non-Jews. Yes, but, yeah, no, but, but I mean, you may about not these have things. to do hocheach tochiach. You may not have to reprove them. You have to be nice to them, yeah. yeah. Like we're going to see those texts. But but there seems to be a difference between what is your obligation vis-a-vis an Israelite or someone who is a permanent part of your community versus a ger. I was thinking that if you had a way of saying in the way we're just talking about we ought to reprove them or talk in a way that um, fosters a conversation as opposed to going up and punching them in the nose, which a lot of people do these days, would be probably a way to go. Yes, so that it's about speech, speaking to someone, not about violence. violence. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Dave? Amy, isn't this really saying when you reprove your kin, do it constructively and not just criticize Yes. Yes. All right. Lo tikom et bnei amecha. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge <clears throat> against members of your people. Ve'ahavta le're'acha kamocha ani Adonai. So you will not take vengeance or bear a grudge against members of your people. Love your, figure out how you want to translate re'acha, as yourself I am Yodhei Vavhei. I found in my 
folder for this Parsha, an entire Safari source sheet for love your fellow as yourself, written by whom? Rabbi Amy Bernstein. <laughs> I have zero recollection of making this source sheet. And I did not bring it today, right? So we're not going to stay here uh, on this. But apparently three years ago, we did. (laughs) We hung out. But that's how much material there is on this that I did a whole source sheet for y'all on just this verse. What about something that happened a long time ago that has held a grudge in a heart? Should that come up and be dealt with or just Yeah, yeah, you're allowed. That's not allowed. It's not allowed. No. It's got to be dealt you with shall immediately. You not bear a grudge. You're not allowed. No, absolutely but not. But if something was not dealt with years ago, then you better deal with it because it's not allowed. Mark wants to say something. You know, it seems to me that there are uh, inherent, uh, if not contradictions, at least um, uh, somewhat incompatible, uh, seemingly incompatible issues, but I don't think they really are incompatible. That... Um, in a way, this says the behavior is what you have to be concerned with, but you must not uh, reprove the the behavior, sinful behavior in another person, uh, in a sinful way, which would seem to imply that you have to have also some reflection uh, of of your own about your own motivations, yeah. your own inner uh, inner. Uh, uh, motivation for doing what you're doing because you can reprove someone for all kinds of reasons and in all kinds of ways. So it seems inherent in yeah. this, in this notion. Yeah. Uh, for it's sure. not, it's not just a behavioral notion. Of course we know that Torah only cares about for the most part behavior, do the work you got to do to get there. People figure it out. Go see your therapist. If we don't do our work, and we don't check our motives and we don't deal with our anger and we don't deal with our frustration. There's no way we can fulfill this mitzvah. Yes. I mean, it, I don't know what I'm trying to say. Everyone's saying, well, doesn't that mean? Well, for you, yeah. For me, yeah. Torah doesn't care. Do you know what I'm saying? Correct. Torah is just like, just, just get there. And then you need to say something, but you can't say something in a way that's going to make you sinful, make you now have bad behavior. So whatever that is for you, take a drug, take a pill, take some mushrooms, whatever, go to your therapist, work on your stuff. What, whatever it is, Torah isn't interested. We are right. We're like, but doesn't that mean, doesn't that mean, doesn't that mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It means that. And we can explore that together and decide what are the ways we can without incurring our own junk right or worsening the situation we can have that conversation all day torah is just very clear you have an obligation to reprove your neighbor or your you know your community member you can't do it in a way that's going to make things worse yes to show the complexity i'm uh, spanking my kid and tell the kid i love you and it hurts me more than it Okay, <laughs> we'll take that as right. All right, so, so there um, was just one other thing that I don't know who it was who said, "Don't love your neighbor as yourself because their tastes may be different," no. which is a completely other take on All right. this. All right, so I'm gonna read a little bit from uh, Kaminkowski um, on this verse. 
The first part of the verse bans both taking revenge and bearing a grudge. The rabbis describe the difference between these two actions or attitudes uh, in a later text uh, by an example. Verse 18, and then it gives the example. Verse 18 begins with a warning about behaviors and feelings, a trope which permeates much of Leviticus 19. Action and intention are interwoven. The Bible stands alone among ancient Near Eastern legal traditions in dictating feeling and intention. Your, you shall love your neighbor as yourself has been the source of much interpretation within both Jewish and Christian traditions. In fact, almost every word in this verse has been the object of interpretation. For example, there have been a variety of suggestions regarding the meaning of the word neighbor. <laughs> Earlier rabbinic interpretation tended to interpret the word neighbor as a member of one's own community, right? Then we get stuff from the Talmud. Franz Rosenzweig interpreted the word kamocha, as yourself, as an adjective modifying the neighbor, thus one kamocha, like you. Like you and thus not you. You remain you and remain just that. He is not to remain a he for you and thus a mere it for you. Rather, he is like you, like your you, a you like you, a soul. The word kamocha can also be rendered as an adverb modifying the verb love. In this case, the text would read, love your neighbor to the same degree that you love yourself. Think about that for a minute, right? Because some of our tradition sees it as, um, sees it as a statement, not a commandment. You will love your neighbor kamocha as you love yourself. So this, right, to all of you who had all this, well, doesn't that mean, doesn't that mean, right? So here the tradition is saying, exactly. If you don't love yourself, if you haven't come to terms with a lot of your own junk about your own self, you are reactive and triggered in a way that you, that, that it will directly influence the quality of the love you have for other people. Right? You can't really love other people well if you don't love yourself. Right? Beautiful interpretation. Finally, the preposition lamed that follows the verb to love. Why is there a lamed there? Right? So you will love to your neighbor as yourself. That really, that lamed doesn't belong there. Barry's going to figure out how it does. Um, but right in general, that lamed doesn't belong there. Why would you, even in Hebrew, ve'ahavta, you would say ve'ahavta re'echa. You will love your neighbor, not you will love le'echa to your neighbor. It doesn't even make sense in Hebrew. Barry will figure out how it does, but um, so do the commentators, right? Because they're going to have a field day with that. Um, can be interpreted as either accusative, meaning the direct object, or as dative, meaning the indirect object. Mm -hmm. Paul Mendesflor distinguishes between the two eloquently. As the direct object of love, rea, neighbor, would be the addressee of love's emotional embrace. As the indirect object of love, like adding that lamed, the two, rea, the neighbor, would be the intended recipient of love's deeds. Ah, so 
right? So that Lamed for Paul Mendes floor changes things a bit to say they become with that Lamed an indirect object. So it isn't that you're loving your neighbor. The neighbor isn't receiving your love as the direct object. It's receiving your love as an indirect object, right? And so meaning they are receiving the results of your actions of love, of loving action. This makes me think of my question about the word reprove. Um, associated words are disprove and improve. And in a sense, they seem like steps along the way to some kind of communication. Right. Nice, Owen. So, right. So you shall reprove. I like that. I have to figure out how to say it. You shall reprove so that you may improve, right, your, your community. Um, right. Uh, a, qu- a question again about uh, grudges. Yes. It seems that it's it it makes sense that it's in the same phrase as not taking vengeance because taking vengeance is a physical act. Bearing a grudge is sort of ongoing psychic vengeance. In other words, you're constantly like in your head doing violence to the other person by holding a grudge. So one place where Torah seems to directly connect mm-hmm. how we think about something and and how that can lead to action, right? There, there's theories that that's why it says in the Ten Commandments, you shall not covet. Because mm-hmm. coveting involves thinking in terms of why does he have that Bodhi thermos? I should have that. right? And so that's what coveting actually is. Not Not that I'm jealous of him. It's that he has that great thermos. I should have that. Right? I can't have it. You know. Um, right? And so it's about I should have it and he shouldn't leads to stealing. The same way that bearing a grudge leads to taking vengeance. Right? And so there seems to be places where there's a direct correlation that Torah makes between how we think and, and the habits of mind and heart, and, and that those actually are connected to action. They don't stop at feeling. I think it also works in the inverse. I mean, we're, t- we're talking about not loving yourself too much and maybe bestowing some of that love onto your neighbor, but you can have someone who, who admires their ma- neighbor too much or thinks nothing of themselves and... And uh, you can look at it that way, too, if you want to. You know, sure, that. and that, that goes right along with the interpretation. It says you will love your neighbor as right. you love yourself. Right? Exactly. If you think nothing of yourself, you actually don't love yeah, your don't, neighbor. Yeah, don't give yourself some love. But yeah, like don't be too impressed with uh, or, you know, like, well, you think about, I mean, the modern idea would be that of fandom, you know, excessive. Fandom? So, fandom, mm-hmm. like excessive celebrity Worship, you know, like some of that worship. Why don't you turn that in on yourself a little bit? Right. Because, I don't know, it's a longer conversation, but I, I feel like admiration for a, a, a superstar is not really admiration. Yeah, they, Do you know what I mean? It's it's being starstruck. It's not, you don't really admire them. You don't know them. It, it's It's worship of what's put in front of us as, you know what I'm saying? I I don't want to, I'm not trying to split hairs. I just really feel like Torah's concerned with, that's kind of another category. But this, 
you won't be able to love another human being if you can't recognize and appreciate things about yourself. Like, you don't really admire them. If you, if you have nothing about yourself you admire, do you really admire someone else? I don't know. I, huh? Yeah, exactly. All right. So, uh, Barry? I feel... Um, okay, let, let me try something, uh, a thought experiment <laughs> regarding the preposition, the le preposition. I knew it. Okay. Because I, uh, it's been in front of my eyes all the time at school, and I've never noticed that it's a le reecha and not an et reecha. Thank God. Um, yeah, but uh, when you're you're commanded, I, I remember two com two commandments. Uh, one being uh, to love God, va'avta et Adonai Elohecha, right? And you have va'avta et hagel. Now. When, when you use the et, which is a direct object, uh, then you do that for your own sake. You love God because then you would feel great. <laughs> you love, uh, you love uh, the stranger because if you uh, provoke the stranger, if you're hateful towards, uh, then these people know how to do intifadas as well. So uh, you will also suffer. So for your own benefit, you should be nice. You should love uh, the stranger and you should love God. But when you, uh, the le preposition is stands for, uh, sometimes for the English preposition for. And, and that's when you love for your, uh, fellow, um, uh, person and not for your own sake, for your own interest. So, okay. So I like how that lines up with that interpretation that we just heard a little earlier, right? From Franz Rosenzweig that says the love shall be for your neighbor. You shall meaning it's a thou, not an it that, and what is the I it relationship? The I it relationship is about doing it serves my needs, right? Loving you, treating you a certain way is about, is about reciprocity. It's about, no, not reciprocity. It's about, it, it's about, it serves me, right? You know, I treat you as an object, you know, it's about me. I'm, I'm not finding instrumental. it's instrumental. You're in that's instrumental for whatever my purposes are. And what I hear you saying, Barry, is that following that line of thinking, you, sh you should love for your neighbor, right? That it should actually be about loving your neighbor, being good for them, really caring about their well-being and regarding them as a thou. And what might that mean from that? What does that require of me versus I see you as an it, which is a means to an end, right? And so I love that. That's a, a lovely interpretation. I'm just going to argue that I think is not so different because we get told over and over again that loving the ger is because because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. We didn't do violence against Egypt. God did. Well, we God. destroyed that country. <laughs> but I get it. I get what you're saying. I also just... Egypt got treatment. destroyed because of the, the treatment towards but, but our... But it wasn't Assyrian. because Israel did it. Israel didn't do an intifada. Right? So, I mean, it's like... I'm no, not we're sure. not an intifada type folk. No. We're not an intifada. <laughs> All right, unless we're blowing up British headquarters, but that's a different conversation. Okay, so, um, all right, so, oh my gosh, y'all, we are at time.
holy buckets. Um, all right, so we're not going to get to mixing animals that are pulling things. Um, but David Seidenberg has a has a nice piece in uh, in Cam Yankowski's book. She put a piece by David Seidenberg in here about the next section of not mixing stuff, um, talking about uh, genetic modification of, of plants uh, and to some extent, you know, breeding of animals and and really kind of wrestling with um, when is it okay, when is it not okay, uh, is it okay in some circumstances and not okay in other circumstances. Torah seems to be concerned about monkeying with nature, right? Pre- priv- presaging the, the, the arguments we're having today about genetic modification, right? And so it's prescient in that Torah cares very much about maintaining the order of creation because when you start to monkey with that, all kinds of crazy and destruction and things we don't foresee or intend can happen. That for me is like, what? Torah, how's it going on? Right? Like, because now we can manipulate nature in all kinds of ways that we know, right, can bring destruction and even unanticipated destruction and consequences. It's too bad you're not going to get to that because I was going to. I wanted to ask you about, you know, Jacob's exercise, you know, with the sheep and the, you know, why, because he seems to be undergoing a certain amount of genetic engineering, not precisely, but, um, right. but I guess next so, time. So he, he does so for only numbers. The numbers of spotted and speckled increase because he mates them together. He's know, not that's... crossing, he's not crossing the lines that Torah's worried about. Oh, okay. Torah's worried about mating a donkey and a horse, creating a mule. Or is it the other way around? <laughs> um, right? That's where Torah's concerned. Okay, so they don't see that. It was just something I've always wondered. Yeah, like, no, oh. so that doesn't, that's not viable. Those are the same species. They normally mate. He's just having them, he's choosing the partners. Now, you can say, well, isn't that engineering? Yes, not in a way that, that scares Torah. You're not crossing a line. We can draw the line somewhere else. We yeah, can yeah, say yeah. he was wrong. Torah, for Torah, there are lines that start to monkey with the separation that happened at creation. That's where we get into trouble. Now, Seidenberg is going to ask us to consider where is that line? Vis-a-vis right. genetically modifying Because a lot of food. genetic modification, you're just taking attributes from the same species and... and Right? So Although roses, you... let's take roses that now are made to be these huge blooms and have no smell. Is that a problem? Why? Well, see, there you go. Judah says, I don't like it because I like the smell. But is, would Torah worry about that? I don't, I would say I don't think so. Right? That, but there are places where it's like if you genetically modify the rose to drug people as they walk by, no, they don't. I guess they're called chimera, is the you know where you mix the lion's head with the, all, all the worst nightmares in the prophets. Can happen. Yeah, for, for sure. Torah is very worried about it. So I just want to close. I want to close uh, with Rabbi Rami Shapiro, who you know I love. Being holy, right? This whole business is the holiness code. Being holy means acting in accord with an awakened insight. If we know that we are one. We cannot exploit, harm, abuse, or otherwise do violence to our neighbor. And we see that we are all neighbors, all kin, all manifestations of the one being. Yudhe Vavhe.
we would no more think to exploit or exterminate another species of animal or another species of plant life than we would think to have our right hand take up an axe and chop off our left hand. We would know and care for the one body in which all of us dwell. But Yudhei did not say to Moshe, no holiness. Yudhei he just said, be holy. Can we be holy without the insight of holiness to support us? What Moshe heard when he opened his ears to reality, capital R, was the imperative to act as if he knew the truth, capital T. There will always be doubt. There will always be a healthy skepticism. There will always be a sense that I am alone and not part of a greater whole. And we should act from holiness anyway. Regardless of whether or not we have seen reality and know the one, capital O, we are to act as if unity were reality. Torah is saying, don't wait to feel the unity, act as if it were so. And in so acting, you will perhaps discover the truth of what we are saying for yourself. Being holy will not guarantee awakening to holiness, but it will maximize our opportunity for awakening. So how shall I be holy? By acting as if everyone and everything is kin to your question, Bert. By not exploiting, lying, cheating, and murdering. By not robbing others of their thermoses, their emotions, their dreams, and their futures. By taking care that our speech heal, not harm. By doing the many, many things that Torah and her sages describe when they deal with the right way one human being should act toward another. For I, yod heh your God, am holy. Why bother to be holy? Because yod heh is holy. What is a norm for yod heh must become a norm for humanity. And since we are a part of yod heh or rather, yod heh manifests us as an ocean manifests waves, we know that holiness is our divine nature. Holiness is not alien to us. It is our deepest essence. What Torah asks is not that we change what we are, only that we discover what we are and act accordingly. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org